Our study this evening is entitled, The Prudence of Abram. When we think about the Bible character of Abram, or as his name was changed later in his life, Abraham, I suppose that we think about faith. And that would be right, the faith of Abraham. He is singled out as a man that was exemplary in reference to his faith. But our study this evening is centered upon the prudence of Abram. A point in his life in which he demonstrated this quality of prudence. I want to lay some background to where we're going to be reading in just a moment. So, you might be opening your Bibles to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 13, we won't be reading from Genesis 13. We will actually be in the very next chapter, in chapter 14. But to get you kind of placed in the historical setting of where we're at, this is after where we're going to be looking at Abram's life. This is after Abram and Lot have separated It's the story that we have in Genesis 13. Uh, Both of their herdsmen were fighting for for pasture land. And so they were arguing with themselves. And so as a result of that, Abram said, we are brethren. We we, We ought not to be fighting over this. And so you remember that's when Abram says, you choose which direction and I will go the opposite way. And so it's in that chapter, you remember, that Lot looks and he sees the well-watered plains of the Jordan and he pitches his tent towards Sodom and the other plain city of Gomorrah. He lives in the area of the plains. There are actually five kings in that area. There are five cities in that area where Lot decides to, to live. And these five kings, in the course of time, had been serving for 12 years a king from Mesopotamia, a king by the name of Kedaloma. And Kedaloma had received tribute from these five kings of the plain, as I said, for 12 years. On the 13th year, the five kings of the plains decided they were tired of paying tribute. And so they said, we're not going to pay tribute anymore. We're going to rebel. Well, you know how that probably goes over. Not so well. And so in the 14th year, King uh, Kedalomer and the three kings that were kind of his subject kings, he was the main one, these four kings come from Mesopotamia and they invade the land. And you see, this is kind of the way in which they did their attack. They, They come from the north. They come all the way down to the south, circle back up through, and if you read in that text, you'll see that they circle through the country of the Amalekites. And if this is the area where many think that Sodom and Gomorrah might have been on the south end of the Dead Sea. Then they, they, they come down, they swing back up through, through the Amalekites, and they attack Sodom and Gomorrah and deal with them. In fact, they don't just deal with them, they utterly destroy them. I mean, they, well, not utterly destroy them, but they defeat them, utterly defeat them in battle. They take all of their goods, all of their food, and Lot is taken as well. And so word gets back to Abram that this great battle has taken place. And the reason that it gets back to Abram is because Lot was taken. He was one of the the casualties of war. 
And so we're told then in Genesis 14 that Abram gathers his forces, all 318 of them. He gathers his forces and he then pursues the army of the kings of Mesopotamia. He catches them in the area of Dan, divides his forces into three different forces and attacks them by night and routs them. In fact, he routs them so badly that he defeats them here and chases them all the way to Damascus. He gets back all the goods and the forces and the, the people. Now, that's where we're at. We've gone a little bit ahead of that. But I want to begin reading in Genesis 14 and verse 17. Abram has been successful. He has defeated these kings. And now he's on his way back with all the goods that had been lost to these kings. And so in verse 17 it says, that after his return from the defeat of Kedalomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkal, and Memre. Let them take their share. This is the section of Scripture in the story that I want to expound upon a little bit in reference to what I see is a moment in the life of Abram that he showed great prudence. So in this story, what is it that was a concern for Abram? In these few verses here, what was he concerned about? Well, he was concerned that the king of Sodom might claim that he had made Abram rich with all of the things that had actually belonged to the king of Sodom. But if the king had told him to take this, isn't that what he says? The king of Sodom, when Abram brings back all of this, uh, the, the food and the possessions and the people. Remember the king of Sodom said, give me the people, you take all the stuff. You take all the wealth. And so if the king had told him that, why was Abram concerned? If the king had told him that, he did not have the right to take it back, did he? If the king had told him that, he couldn't begrudge the benefit to Abram, right? So why was Abram fearful? Abram understood something about people, and maybe about this particular man, in the king of Sodom, Abram knew that just because the king had no right to take back or to begrudge what was given didn't mean it couldn't happen. 
It didn't mean that as the king of Sodom had his people back and as he looked out over the shattered ruins of his kingdom and he saw Abram over there living in wealth and living in splendor, it didn't mean at some point in time that the king of Sodom would say, well, you know, we're struggling to get to, to make ends meet. Our food is over there in the camp of Abram. We're struggling to survive and there's Abram over there with our stuff. And so Abram understood that, that there might be a point in the king of Sodom's life, or at least in the future, where he would look over and say, hmm, we've made him rich. And this is where I think we see Abram's prudence. Abram understood something. And it's something that sometimes I think we struggle because we say, well, that's not fair. And the problem is, you know what, you're right, that's not fair, but that doesn't mean that that won't happen. Abram knew that what he had the right to do didn't mean that he should do it. Sodom had lost the possessions and the people. The kings of the plains had lost all of that. They had lost it in battle. Abram had gone and conquered those who had conquered them and got it back. They had no right to claim that, but that didn't mean that they wouldn't. What the king of Sodom, was something else that Abram knew, was that what the king of Sodom had no right to claim didn't mean that he wouldn't try to claim it. Abram's understanding of the possibilities of this situation, I think, proved his prudence. Well, we've said prudence quite a bit, haven't we? So, what is prudence? What is this quality that was displayed at least in this particular point of our sermon. Well, the Hebrew word for prudence, Zodiati says that this particular word is a feminine singular noun meaning craftiness, prudence. It is the Hebrew word, the theological workbook of the Old Testament says, that it is the Hebrew word aram and is a root with positive, meaning prudence, and negative, meaning shrewdness, connotations. So this one word has a positive connotation to it, and when it's used positively, it's prudence. And then it has a negative connotation to it, and when it's used negatively, it means crafty. Now, you look at that same word, you think, well, now, <laughs> how could a word go two different directions like that? How could a word go this way, and mean prudence positively in this way, and mean craftiness negatively. There must be something similar. There must be something in common in this particular word. Merriam-Webster says that prudence is careful good judgment that allows someone to avoid danger or risk. Think about the term crafty. Crafty, according to vocabulary.com, the adjective crafty comes from the old English word crafty, which meant strong or powerful. But the meaning of crafty, as is the case with so many words, the meaning of crafty these days has to do with being skilled at getting what you want through manipulation, deceit, and trickery. Let's try to explain it this way. A crafty person will determine, given the situation, how best to take advantage of it for his own benefit. Let me give you an example of that. 
Satan is said to be crafty. Satan is said to be someone who's always scheming. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. You know the story of Genesis chapter 3. Serpents more crafty than any beast of the field. Well, we know that that serpent of old, as we're told in Revelation, is the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The idea of crafty and what that concept means in reference to how the devil is, is that the devil looks for situations that he can take advantage of someone. There's a situation wherein I can use that and I can manipulate that situation or I can use that situation to my advantage. In fact, we see that all throughout the Bible. And Paul understands that. So look, here's a situation. You better be careful because the devil's going to come into this situation and he is going to take advantage of you in this situation. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 5, Apostle Paul says, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, if you were to read the first four verses, you probably already know this, but if you read the first four verses, the Corinthians were having this idea that, that husbands and wives should deprive themselves of the sexual relationship. And so Paul is saying, now stop that. Stop depriving one another of sexual relationships. Stop depriving one another of that so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come again together so that what's, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's a husband and here's a wife depriving each other of the sexual relations. And so Paul says, look, if you continue to do that, you have created a situation wherein the devil's going to take advantage of you. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. When I have unresolved anger then what Paul is saying, if you don't deal with that and deal with that quickly, then you're giving the devil an opportunity to step in and take advantage of you. Now we have the sin of malice. Now we have the sin of ill will. Now we have the sin of guile. We may very well have the sin of gossip. We may very well have any number of sins as a result of it because you had unresolved anger. That was the situation. And the devil is crafty. He looks for situations where he can use and, and cause a problem. And here's one of them. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul has told him in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you need to deal with this man that is got his father's wife. You should have taken care of this, but instead you've been arrogant about this. You've been puffed up about this. And so he tells them what they need to do. You need to withdraw from this man. And so, that's what they do. They have done that, 
And so now Paul writes back to them and says, okay, here's what you need to do now. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So they wouldn't deal with him, they wouldn't do anything about it. Paul said you need to withdraw from that one. So they withdrew from him and it had the impact that it needed to have and it had brought that man back. But now they seem to be hesitant to want to forgive him. And so Paul says, look, you need to forgive him. The punishment that you inflicted, that I told you to inflict, that you did, it worked. So you need to forgive this one. You need to reaffirm your love for him, verse 8. For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one to whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And notice the next verse. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. If you don't forgive this man, then you're going to overwhelm him with excessive sorrow. You are creating a situation that the devil's going to come in and in his craftiness, he is going to take advantage of the situation that's placed before him. That's this idea. But the same word has a positive connotation to it. And what ties these words together is the situation. A prudent person will determine, given the situation, how best not to be taken advantage of by others. Someone, we would say, shows prudence when they see, now here's someone, here's a way that I might be taken advantage of. Why was it that Paul gives these warnings in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 2? Paul says, look, the devil in his craftiness is going to come and take advantage of you and I want you to have prudence and recognize that here's the situation you might be taken advantage of. You need to see that and not allow that to take place. So the question then is, who needs this prudence? Who needs this? Let's go to the book of Proverbs. Who needs this ability to, to look out and to see? Now, here's a situation I need to be careful about because I could get taken advantage of in this situation. Who needs that kind of a character or quality in their life? In the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs or uh, Solomon indicates to us, why is it that he writes this book? Why write down a bunch of Proverbs? And he says in verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction and to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. And, verse 4, to give prudence. But prudence to who? The naive. To youth, knowledge, and discretion. This word, naive, according to Zodiades, Dictionary of Old Testament Words, it refers to a person who is naive concerning the complexities and challenges of life. He's inexperienced and he lacks insight. Macmillan Dictionary says, a naive person lacks experience of life and tends to trust other people and believe things too easily. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 5. 
Oh, naive ones, understand prudence. And oh, fools, understand wisdom. Abram demonstrated his prudence. He wasn't naive in reference to the complexities of life, what people might do even though they don't have the right to do, what someone might pull even though they shouldn't. Abram was aware of what the king of Sodom might try to do. And Abram said, I'm not going to allow you to take advantage of me in this situation. And so he just gives all of his stuff to him. Gives it back to him. Abram was prudent and not naive. Abram had the right to keep what he had recovered. But he knew who he was dealing with. And so he followed a prudent course of action. Maybe Abram knew the character of this king. I mean, after all, what do we find happening just a few chapters later? Just a little bit of time later, God sends messengers to look at the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we find that all those cities of the plain being destroyed because of their wickedness. Well, do wicked men have morals and scruples and standards by which that they would not cheat someone? Nah. So I think Abram knew the character of the man that he was dealing with. And he said, no, I'm not going to allow you to take advantage of me. He was not naive about his situation. Consider something found in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3. And this shows the difference and why that the naive person needs to have prudence in his life. In Proverbs 22 and verse 3, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself. Remember one of the definitions of prudence? We said that he lacks lacks insight. He lacks the ability to, to see ahead of him. So the prudent sees the evil said, no, I see where this is going, and he hides himself. What does the naive do? The naive go on and are punished for it. Look in chapter 27 and verse 12. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. We've all known individuals who think, boy, they are so naive. They should have seen that coming. They just should have seen that that was going to be an issue. They should have understood that that wasn't going to work out. They should have, whatever it was, they should have had some foresight and understood that a little bit about the complexities of life, as one of our definitions said, and they should have not got themselves in that situation. So we might look at that and say, well, they, they got themselves in that situation because they weren't thinking. They were too naive about things. And Abram said, I'm not going to get put in that situation. This gets us to our first application. You know, when we approach situations in life, do we show ourselves prudent or do we show ourselves to be naive? It is dangerous to be naive. Look at the number of times just in our lesson this evening that Solomon talks about this trait of being naive. Proverbs 14, in verse 14, verse 15 rather, the naive believes everything 
but the sensible man considers his steps. There's another concept. I mean, you can do a whole lesson in Proverbs on what does a naive person looks like look like? Well, he never sees the danger, so he just runs headlong into it. Anything that anybody tells him, he believes it. That's got to be true. Why would he lie to me? You've known people like that? Well, I don't know why they would have lied to me. And what do we sometimes think if we don't say it? You are so naive. You can't believe everything everybody tells you. The prudent man understands that. The sensible man considers. Now, wait a minute. I need to think about that. Is that really, is that the truth? The naive inherit foolishness, verse 18, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. And then look at this sad case in Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a man lacking sense. Now what is this man going to do that made Solomon say, This man is not thinking beyond the end of his nose. Well, we are given what happens. Passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house, and in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Well, this isn't going to end very well, is it? On the one hand, we have a young man who is naive, on the other hand, we have a woman who is cunning. I wonder who's going to get the better of who in this. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks at every corner. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I spread my couch with my coverings, with colored lindings of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with, our, with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey, and he has taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Clueless. We have had in the last few years, unfortunately, we have had a couple of occasions where married men and the congregation were not faithful to their wives. And the damage that that does to them, to their wife, to their children, to it's even to their faith. Because after that happens, nothing is ever the same again. They may reconcile and they may get together, but trust is, a, is, a, is difficult to, to win back. And all of that is because they were naive and thought, well, I can do this and it's okay. 
Or I can make these kind of choices and it won't impact me. It won't affect me. And they may look and say, well, I'm not like this guy. And we have said, you are exactly this guy. Let me tell you, brethren, we need prudence in the world today. And in the Lord's church, we need prudence. If we think that marital unfaithfulness and homosexuality and sexual and immoral sins, that we think those things are, are outside the four walls of this place, then you are naive. I say that kindly, but I say that frankly. You are naive if that's what you think. Because if we believe that, well, I'm too strong, I'm too faithful, I'm too righteous to be engaged in that, remember when Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 10 and he gave an example, don't be like these individuals. And he gave a list of places where the children of Israel failed God in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as, almost as if he understood that they would go to read that list and think, well, we would never do that. He says in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This was a naive man. There was nothing about what he was about to do, nothing about where he was about to go that was going to turn out well for him. Several years ago, we had a situation where a man came to, uh, to the elders and I. We were all together. And he said, well, I'm thinking about going to this particular event. And all of us said, that's a bad idea. Christians do not need to be at that kind of an event because of the temptations that are there. And his comment was, well, I can handle it. He said, don't do it. Well, he went. And he succumbed to the very temptations. He was naive about what he thought he could handle. He succumbed to the very temptations. And then he came back to us and said, well, now what do I do? now you want to listen? How frustrating that is when people are told what they should do. They're naive enough to believe that that won't impact them and then they come back and say, now will you fix this? Well, I, if you would have listened to the first advice, we wouldn't be where we're at now. That's what this man did. Prudent people don't do that. Prudent people look at the situation and say, whoo, that's dangerous. Whoo, I don't need to be involved in that. That's going to be a problem. There's evil over there. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm not going to get anywhere near that. There's nothing wrong with running away. That's exactly what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife came to him. He turned and ran away. That's not an act of cowardice. That's an act of prudence. I'm not going to be involved in that. I'm not going to allow this situation, I'm not going to allow myself to be taken advantage of. You know, there's an interesting comment that Jesus makes to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is about to send them out into a, one of the commissions that he sends them out in preaching. He calls these 12 men and he's about to have them to go out and to preach and to proclaim But he wants them to understand that the situation that they're going to be in, they need to keep their eyes wide open. Look what he says in verse 16. 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, how do you think that's going to turn out? You need to recognize, I'm sending you out, but you are sheep in the midst of wolves. So here's my exhortation to you. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You better tread carefully. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, John says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If this gospel is veiled, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Brethren, we are living in enemy territory. We are living as sheep among wolves. We are living in a world that the devil is running. We definitely need prudence. We have got to keep our eyes open. We have got to be watching constantly because the devil is in his own world too. And he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I've got to be aware of the situation and not be taken advantage of it. And the devil is trying to be crafty and find those situations that he can take advantage of. Second thing I want us to think about in reference to Abram's prudence, and that is a question. Did Abram absolutely know the king of Sodom would really make that statement? Did he know that sometime in the future that the king of Sodom would really look over at Abram and say, you know, I've made him wealthy. Would he really have that mentality? Notice that in the text, in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 23, that Abram did not say that he knew that, for sure, that this would be what would happen, but he was fearful that it might. Abram chose a course of action solely upon a fear of what might happen. Which gets us to our second application. What do you think about making decisions out of fear for what might happen? Or where it might lead? Is that a prudent course? Well, I believe that it is. Abram did this. Abram said, I can't be sure that he'll make that statement. I can't really know for certain that that's going to be a, the, the idea that he's going to take. And I can't really be sure about the fact that he would actually claim that about me. But that's a possibility. And I'm not going to give him the ability to make that statement. And so he made the decision out of fear for what might happen, what might take place. I want you to consider something. A Christian man goes to encourage a Christian woman. Should he go alone? I remember when I first started preaching, my dad has spent his life preaching. When I first started preaching, that was one of the first things that my dad said. He said, look, you're going to get into situations where you need to go encourage a woman. You never go by yourself. You never do that. That's the prudent course to pursue. 
So, oh, well, yeah, sure, I would, yeah, I, I, I would never do that. Here's something that's happened. A man or a woman reconnects with their old high school boyfriend or girlfriend through Facebook. Why are you doing that? There's a reason for that. You are opening a door for temptation. I want you to think about what is stated in Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, Paul says, really I'd like for us to begin in verse 11, do do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. That idea of provision is to know ahead. To know ahead. That's what the idea of of provisions. We're going to go on our hunting trip. Well, do you have the provisions that you need? Well, we think about what we need ahead of time. We're looking ahead, trying to determine, now what are we going to need in this particular hunting trip? What do we need to take? What food do we need to take? What, what clothing do we need to take? What kind of tents and stuff like that? What kind of gear do we need to take? That's making provision. We, we're looking ahead, trying to figure out ahead of time what we know that we're going to need, and then take that with us. There are times in which we need to look ahead and say, I don't know, that looks like that could be a fleshly temptation ahead of me there. That's prudence, isn't it? I look ahead and I see a situation and say, "Mm, that situation, I could be tempted. I'm afraid of what might happen. And so I'm just going to avoid that. That's what Abram did. Abraham didn't know that the king of Sodom would make that claim, but Abraham was afraid that he might. He said, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where he can take advantage of me. The last thing I want us to think about in reference to Abraham's prudence, I'm impressed with this, that this was not a spur-of-the-moment decision on Abraham's part. Think back to our map. That was about a 100, 200-mile journey that Abraham made. It took a long time to walk that. He had a long time to think. And he had a long time to think about what am I going to do with all this stuff that I'm going to bring back? And what's going to be said to me when I get to the plains where the king is? I want you to notice that what Abram says when the the king says to him, and he comes out and he says, you just give me the people and you can have all of the goods. Notice that Abram said, I have sworn. Abram had already decided what he would do while on this return journey. He'd already thought about this. He'd already chewed on that. And he'd already had a course of action. Abram had already played this scene through in his mind. He had anticipated the possibility of the king saying this and had already decided what was his answer would be and what had already made a note to God regarding it. 
And even if you say, well, I don't know that he was thinking about this. Abram had already made the decision. I'm not keeping any of this. And so even when the king came to him and said, hey, keep all this. Abram said, no, I've already sworn to God. I'm not keeping any of this. You can have it all. You can have it back. And so this gets to our final application. Do we anticipate what might happen in certain situations and determine what we will do ahead of time? Do we get a plan of action? There are times in which we can anticipate that. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Think about James chapter 5. The one who converts a brother from the one who converts a sinner from the air of his way converts someone from being lost. But you know, if someone is in sin and if someone has, has, has stumbled and you go to them and you're trying to convict them of sin, do they always receive that? Do they take that and say, Well, brother, I'm so glad you came over here to convict me of my sin? Doesn't always work that way, does it? If you've ever had to go and to talk to someone who is in sin or is acting in a way that's inappropriate or has said something or done something or whatever it is that's sin in their life and you've got to go and you've got to try to, to exhort them or convict them of that sin or they've allowed that sin to just go, cause them to go completely off the rails and now you're trying to bring them back. Most of the time, individuals get very defensive. They get very hostile. They accuse you of all manner of things and you've got to know going into this situation. Now look. If you go in to talk to this brother, this brother may not receive what you're saying. He may not accept that. He may get hostile. He may get angry. He may start throwing all kinds of accusations at you. You've got to know going in how you're going to handle that. In fact, I imagine that most of us who have ever had to had that kind of situation in our lives, one of the last things that we do is we pray to God for wisdom to say the right thing when we get in there and for the self-control to not get angry or retaliate when we are attacked. That's what the prudent man does. We need to have a plan of action. There are times, though, where in situations may just present the possibility of difficulties. I remember we were dealing with a, a, a young man that we had converted out of the world, and all of his family were still in the world, and one brother really caused a lot of issues with him. And every time they had a family gathering, a birthday party or something, this brother that we had converted was, was concerned that if his brother shows up, he's going to cause a problem. And so we told him, like, okay, you've got to figure out going into it, you know that it's a possibility he's going to show up. And you have a temper problem. And he was, we were working with him on that. You've got a temper problem. And if he shows up and starts causing drama, and you know you've got a temper problem, and you might be tempted to react, you've got to know going into it, what is my plan? What am I going to do? How am I going to act? What's my exit strategy, if you will? If he shows up, what do I need to do? That shows prudence. 
if there's a gathering of friends or workmates where drama might come up, where there's going to be inappropriateness or where sin might happen, I've got to have a plan as to what I'm going to do. Abram had the plan. If this comes up, here's what I'm going to do. I've already sworn to the Lord, this is my plan. That's the attitude of prudence. You know, I see that in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, though the word prudent isn't used, we typically go to this passage and we talk about the matter of of being uh, prepared. But in back of that is an understanding about wedding rituals. And knowing that this idea of the bridegroom coming at a set time, well, that, that didn't happen in Jewish weddings. The bridegroom came when the bridegroom came. And he might come early in the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day. There was no set time. And so the virgins that were there that would receive the wedding party, they had to be prepared for whenever the bridegroom came. However long that might have taken. And I want you to notice that in this parable of the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins, that what made them wise and what made them foolish is that five of them were prepared. They looked at the situation. They said, you know, we don't know. This is a situation wherein he might be delayed. He might take longer than normal. We don't know how long it's going to take. So we're going to make sure that we are prepared for whatever the situation may call. And so as a result of that, they had the oil in their lamps and they had extra oil just in case. They had thought it through. And they'd made a plan. I think that's a great example of prudence. I mean, we use this for other lessons to be taught, and rightly so. But those five virgins were wise because they had a plan. They knew that the possibility of that plan might take place, that there might be a delay, and they were ready for whatever might happen. Abram demonstrated his prudence by not being naive about the situation with the king of Sodom. He showed wisdom. He proved his prudence by making a decision from fear of what might happen. He showed foresight in that. And then Abram demonstrated prudence by anticipating a situation and making a plan of action. He showed that he was prepared. Brethren, we're going to face situations in life wherein we need to apply the prudence of Abram. We have got to be, since we are living in enemy territory, we have got to be individuals who show prudence and show foresight. And for that reason, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. And so from this particular part of Abram's life, yes, he was a man of faith, But at least in this part of his life, he was a man of great prudence. If you're here this evening, your life is not what it needs to be, and we can help you make it right. Let us know what we can do. So come forward, hold together, we stand, and while we sing. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord, no.